Hi team and welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. In this episode, I chatted with Alex Thomas of the Sports Nutrition Association. The Sports Nutrition Association is the global regulatory body responsible for the standardization of best practice in the sports nutrition profession, which means that you can register with the Sports Nutrition Association to become an accredited sports nutritionist, an accreditation that is valid in New Zealand, Australia, Europe, the United States, and many other countries. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. my man the the man behind the sports nutrition association um i usually start these things by uh, with a little bit of a genesis story talking about how i met whoever it is um and we've never actually met in person but i was introduced to you i think through dr eric helms and um he introduced me to the sports nutrition association that you had set up and some of the amazing people you've got behind it um subsequently i obviously became involved as uh, one of the global advisory board um, doing a bit of work with the Sports Nutrition Association here in New Zealand. So how did the Sports Nutrition come come to be? What What is the Sports Nutrition Association and what, what's it about? So the association is like came to be because there was this big gap in the industry um, that, you know, was the realms of sports nutrition. So we had online coaches giving their clients body composition nutrition advice. We have S&C coaches providing their clients with performance nutrition plans. We had sports scientists, ex-physicists doing something similar. Um, I guess the spectrum really started at sort of like uh, frontline personal trainers, health coaches, all the way through to dietitians. And sort of within that field was this broad term and range of what sports nutrition was, uh, really up to dietetics. And so in seeing this... um, you know, I guess, I guess if I rewind even more, it started in Australia. And so it started because I owned and operated at a, like a gym and an allied health center. And I found out through my insurance broker at the time, this is about eight years ago now, um, that I wasn't covered for what any of my coaches were telling their clients. And this would have been SNC coaches or personal trainers, um, all the way through to my sports scientists and exercise physiologists. And even though I had a dietitian on star, um, that didn't cover me. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is like horrible news for me. The owner has got, you know, my neck on the, on the chopping block. Um, and so for me, I was like, oh, we have to do something about this. How, 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 is, how does nothing exist? So I guess the first step was to establish and standardize what sports nutrition was within Australia. And then what we found as it was growing was that basically the same thing existed in almost every region. Just give me a second, mate. I'll, I've got to sort this dog out. No worries. 
And at this point, we took a quick break while Alex sorted out his barking dog. Sorry, man. That is my one and a half year old boy. And when the neighbor's dog comes out, he wants to try and play with him. Yeah. And And that's Murphy's law. Whenever you're doing a podcast, the dog starts to bark, right? I I, I said to all the staff, I was like, guys, I've got the podcast. You just need to keep it super quiet, all this kind of stuff. And I didn't even think to like put him up that the neighbor's dog would be out that he wants to play with every day. Um, So that is my bad. But um, yeah, so basically um, sort of rehashing that, what we found was we'd established it within Australia and then we had found that pretty much every, the same problem existed in every other country and region in the world, except for in the UK. So the UK had Senna established, which was the Sport Exercise and Nutrition Registry. And so they were taking care of sports nutrition and Senna is a branch or they're affiliated with the BDA, the British Dietetics Association. And so they were doing it there. But like in every other country, it wasn't the case. And this was confirmed um, quite heavily back in early 2019 when I hosted the first annual conference for like the Sports Nutrition Australia conference. Um, and I had international speakers coming out presenting in the, you know, specialized area. And then I just did a quick 15 minute address to the audience saying, Hey, look, this is who we are. This is what we do. Here's some claim statistics, um, you know, within the industry, we need to right now we're doing some really good things, but we can be doing a better job. Um, part of that is awareness and then then the secondary part is once people are aware is they're making better informed decisions in line with what best practice is. And this is what best practice looks like. And so then the speakers from the U S from Europe, from Asia were like, Hey, we need this in our countries and regions. How do we go about uh, facilitating that? And so effectively the association and the global body of the association was formed as we were adding more uh, countries and regions it just made sense to amalgamate those countries and regions into one global body that would standardize and will first of all establish the standardized best practice in sports nutrition and what, what that actually meant. And had you initially thought that it would go global? Had that been sort of on your roadmap or you were thinking about Australia pretty firmly? Absolutely. Absolutely not. Yeah. So um, yeah, I I completely fell into all of this. Um, and, And what I found but with, with me personally, you know, like I, I aspired to, you know, follow in the footsteps of people like yourself and Eric who were paving the way and doing research. Right. And so I was like, I was, and I was, and still am very, very interested in exercise metabolism and energy availability. And I would love to be involved in research, um, you know, specifically to do with that. However, what I found, you know, especially over the last, three to four years is that what I'm passionate about um, or like what I'm interested in isn't the same as sort of what I'm pulled to do. And so what I tend to then be more consistent at and where I just naturally gravitate um, or where my time naturally gravitates is to things where in my mind, they just make sense and someone needs to be doing like acting in that space. Something needs to be done about this. Yeah. It's, to me, I would describe it as it's like a, why is no one doing this? Okay, how do we how do we go about you know fixing this problem? And that, that might really surprise people, you know. It sort of it, it equally surprised and didn't surprise me having taught 
at, you know, I guess lectured at a lot of universities and taught as a faculty member teaching nutrition, I've been well aware that a lot of nutrition, nutrition graduates, not personal trainers, not strength coaches, but a lot of nutrition graduates simply don't have the skill set to work with athletes or, you know, for body composition, whatever it happens to be, because so much of what we do is very foundational nutritional sciences. And then it translates very quickly into kind of broad recommendations that work for, for health, um, hmm. maybe the prevention of, you know, non-communicable diseases and things like that. But it's really, you know, it surprised me in the early days that there simply wasn't that degree of quantified performance-based nutrition. And that further, there wasn't really any bodies that specifically dealt with that. You know, you can be a dietitian, you can be a registered nutritionist, you can be a registered clinical nutritionist here in New Zealand. But, you know, are any of those groups really covering sports nutrition well? And I'd say probably not, although some of the members might do sports nutrition well. It seemed to be mm. very much something that was just up to the individual to get their qualification, then upskill, and then almost, you know, through time on feet working with athletes, gain a bit of notoriety in that space. Yeah, and, and then I would say, I would echo that and say, that, and then those people, based on what they were observing anecdotally, were then contributing to the research in the field as well, which was then helping inform practice. But then again, we weren't then getting uh, any form of framework for those recommendations and then for how to practice, um, I guess, you know, from a, from a body. That, that's a really good point because I think you've hit on something which is, you know, it's very interesting and people probably don't realize that within that field of sports nutrition, we've got a big crossover in, I, I guess, what people are right? You've got a big mm. crossover in terms of people's occupation or what their skill set is. We've got exercise physiologists, we've got nutritionists, we've got dietitians, we've got, you know, pure research scientists. There's a whole bunch and, and some people wear several hats, mm. but you know, where's the, the recognition of that as a specific field and I, and, and how do we then see credibility within people, which I guess is where the sports nutrition association fits in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a, a big component of it was just looking to establish and standardize what it is to be a sports nutritionist and what that looks like at a professional level. And again, it's, it was just something that uh, I completely fell into. And it wasn't something that from the get go, it was like, Hey, we need to do this. It was sort of, it, it started, it was this evolutionary process where it was like, Hey, I need to be covered. And then through doing that, word of mouth once that had actually been accomplished then word of mouth of this process to actually become covered existed and then that started to spread and then after about two and a half years about 200 people had gone through that process and so the insurers and underwriters that were underwriting the policy were like you have to start regulating this yeah like this is a good thing but you need to start regulating this because people just can't be getting their, you know, this qualification and then doing this stuff, um, you know, until further notice and hoping for the best. So you need to start regulating and auditing these people if, if you actually want to continue with this. And it was at that point that I was like, you know what, like I genuinely really enjoy this and I believe that this is a much needed thing. And so then from that point, that's where it became more about answering the questions, answering the specific question of like, what is a sports nutrition professional? What is a sports nutritionist? what does that ongoing uh, regulation look like? Yeah. 
And so, so that, sorry, you go. No, so in a, in a nutshell, what the, the Sports Nutrition Association is a global governing body for sports nutrition that allows for registration as an accredited sports nutritionist and upskilling mm -hmm. for people who maybe don't have the prerequisites to, to, to reach that educational standard. Yep, exactly. So we look to establish what best practice is for the sports nutrition profession. And then we look to then regulate that ongoing service provision that our members provide. And then at the same time, provide them with a professional framework to operate within. Yeah. And so like, I guess for anyone listening that might sound a little bit wordy, our, our, our mission is effectively to ensure the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession. And so prior to this, basically anyone could come out of a program, whether it's, you know, nutrition, health science, dietetics, be a nutrition science researcher or exercise physiology and just saying, Hey, I'm now providing this service for my clients and they could be doing it in a multitude of ways. Some of which, and most of which were really good and going to be really complimentary to a person and they do no harm and that help them with their goals, but potentially some, uh, you know, unbeknownst to the professional could be causing harm or, or detriment or, you know, not helping them with performance or body composition or, you know, in the areas that they were, you know, hoping to really achieve positive results in. Yeah. So I, I guess a, a key angle to this is not just the sort of credibility and having that um, credibility indicator for people wanting to see, let's say a personal trainer who's also a sports nutritionist, um, but it also helps to define some of the issues around scopes of practice, which have been a real, you know, point of contention yeah. over the years, right? Yeah, it's been super, super hairy. Um, and I guess that was like one of the big components that we have within the whole accreditation process is uh, this, this module that really goes into the health risk assessment and then triage process if there are any contraindicated risks present or that have been, um, you know, assessed in the screening process. So, you know, are there risks present and then what to do in the event of these risks and then who to work with in that triage process. And that's really, really important because sports nutritionists at this point aren't clinically trained. So at the Holistic Performance Institute, we, we sort of define the, the scopes of practice. We've obviously got a little bit more info around it, but we define it quite simply. You know, we summarize it quite simply in that a, at the nutrition coach level, which is analogous to if, if they've done the additional training to, to become a sports nutritionist, it's sort of analogous to that level. They are able to work with people for the um, support of health and performance. And if they've done the particular modules to, to go on and be a sports nutritionist, also for the, the improvement of performance and body composition. Mm -hmm. The big difference being at the nutritionist level or clinical nutritionist level, they can also work with people who have disease and disorder and they can work with medical nutrition to help treat that disease and disorder. Is that a similar sort of scope of practice or is there a little bit of a difference um, in terms of what a sports nutritionist can do through the SNA? Yeah. So I would say it's extremely similar until you get to the HBN level two, where they're working with the clinical medical, medical side of things. So as soon as they're working with anything to do with a health, you know, like, like a health condition or treating and preventing any form of chronic disease, 
than a sports nutritionist, unless they're also then a registered clinical nutritionist or a registered dietitian. If they're just a sports nutritionist and a registered and accredited sports nutritionist, then they can't work with any form of chronic disease or medical condition. So in many respects, it carves out a really nice scope of practice because I remember way back in the day when I first started, most of the dietetic associations and I guess most of the clinical nutrition or, or other nutrition associations were basically very opposed to strength coaches or physiologists or personal trainers working with nutrition at all. Mm. The reality is that had to shift and it did shift in, you know, the, the literature that was put out by a lot of those associations because you, you simply can't stop personal trainers from helping people and nutrition is going to be an integral part of it. So, you know, this really does, I think, help to bridge that gap and set some, some nice boundaries around what, you know, sports nutritionists or people working with body composition really can and can't do, um, but also offers them pathways, obviously, to upskill where they need to if they want to be doing, you know, the, the, the more advanced stuff. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So I think, um, I think the whole, the whole sort of like, uh, you know, prohibition and banning things, we know through like the Prohibition of Alcohol Act that it doesn't really work. Um, so to say personal trainers and these people can't do it, we, we know just based on history that, that that's not going to work. Um, and it come, I, I think it comes from understanding that like coaches have people's best interests at heart as well. And so they want to help. And then that person, a lot of the time will be asking them for advice anyway. So yeah. if we can give them some tools and if we can give them a framework to be more successful in whilst then educating them as to, you know, when they would need to refer on and who they need to refer on to. Um, we can then work with them a lot more effectively in that capacity. Um, I think at the same time, uh, you know, I think just acknowledging as well, like the majority of people, I would, you know, I would say probably about 90 to 95% of people, you know, if they're, if they're talking to someone about their nutrition or if they're going to a personal trainer, they, they're going to be going from a weight management perspective anyway. So they're going to be going because they want to lose a few kilos or recomposition their body in a certain capacity. And so there, there's definitely some aesthetic related reason as to, you know, why they're seeing that person. So, you know, like people that are clinically trained in like how to work with these diseases, if they're only trained in that may not be the best person to then understand the bioenergetic needs of the person to then suit or provide them with the most complementary nutrition program to help them with their weight management goals as well. That's and a so, really good point. Really great point because I've certainly seen that in the educational space as well. When, when people are very focused on clinical, um, they will, you know, have a lot of complex skills, but they won't always be able to work with something like body composition, you know, as effectively as they possibly could. And a lot of people would think, well, that's the simpler, the simpler thing. But it's not really, it's just different. You know, there are a lot of complexities within that as well. And I think that's that's also why there's a real value for something like this, because we've seen that, you know, there are graduated skill sets and there are different skill sets. A lot of advances that have been made in nutrition have been made by people who aren't necessarily in that clinical nutrition realm. You know, mm. they, they may not be registered dietitians or registered dietitian researchers. You know, they are people who might come from a physiology background or a personal training, strength coaching. Uh, you know, we see a lot of the developments in, in sports nutrition have come from that particularly, but, you know, even more so body composition nutrition. And mm. I know I'm rambling here, but I'd also say a lot of the crossover 
into general nutrition comes from those areas as well. And it comes from two, basically. It comes from treating disease and disorder because that's where the money is. And it comes from sport and body composition because that's where the money is. Now, those those two areas are going to meet in the middle for your general population because, hey, let's face it, a lot of people who want to improve their metabolic status, lose body fat, be healthier and live longer, a lot of the leads for that research came from early bodybuilding pioneers, Mm. (laughs) you know, because Mm. how better to, to gain or retain muscle and lose fat than the work that those guys laid down. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, when we think about it, like we've done all these fasting cardio, uh, like, like, like research, um, comparisons because Bill Phillips posted back in the day, Hey, if you do your cardio first thing in the morning, it's going to stoke your metabolic fire or stoke your metabolic furnace in the body for life. Yeah. And so everyone was like, no, no, we have to test whether or not this is true or not. So it's like, you know, comparing fasted to non-fasted cardio. And I'd, I'd say that, uh, you know, those, that research has been flogged recently, um, you know, but we still have people sort of looking at it from there as well. So, you know, someone will, you'll have seen some article in Muscle Mag from 30 years ago with someone suggesting based on what they've seen or observed in the weight room floor, uh, you know, this is what we're seeing. And then someone either wants to prove it correct or incorrect. And so, you know, they're testing and trialing it. Yeah. But that, um, yeah. That I, brings I, up an interesting tangent actually and sorry to cut you off we're sort of i I think we're both on a similar track here but um one thing that appealed to me you know one thing that appealed to me in the ecna was it it was very non-dogmatic you know we see dogma creeps into nutrition a huge amount you know we Mm. see the rise of the yes we have quacks on one side but we also have sometimes equally as guilty of the quack busters who also become very dogmatic in their particular ways. Uh, one thing I really liked about the the team you put together, and we should definitely talk about that in terms of the, you know, the advisory board and the, the advisors you have around the world, but also in terms of just the ethos of the SNA was it was consummately evidence-based in, in the best way. And I think the best way is to be very objective, very impartial about the evidence uh, and mm. recognize that there are a lot of different let's say methods or modalities out there that could achieve particular results. Um, But we're always going to look at the whole person and their whole environment, but go back to the science at every point to see what is most effective. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's like when we were first chatting, it was like, it was me talking to you about, all right, we've got to get a lecture about carb appropriate practice because I, I find the tendency or what I've observed, and this is just my own bias, the tendency with professionals is that they're like, oh, it's an athlete. So, you know, you're doing intense work. So you must have carbohydrates. And yeah. so, you, you know, the inclusion of your lecture was very much um, intended to sort of, you know, rebalance the scales as far as that was concerned and get people thinking a little bit more critically because yes, yeah, like athletes doing really, really, really intense things and looking to be a world champion if their physiology supports that, if you've assessed their physiology under duress and it supports the use, you know, the primary uh, fueling of carbohydrates, then yeah, like give it to them. But for the majority of gen pop weight management clients, if we say that that's your bread and butter and that's where the money is, that may not be the case. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that we certainly discussed and that I really hope came through in the lecture as well is that there are, there are things that we know from the science, 
Mm. There's things we don't know. There are leads we can take from the evidence and they point to certain, let's say, predictors or indices being possibly indicative of what type of diet someone should be on, whether that's metabolic status, health condition, um, various markers we can see. And that can help to predict best fit diet. But at the end of the day, there's a lot more going on too in terms of their total lifestyle, other physiological impactors of that, um, and also their psychosocial state and psychosocial environment. All of these things are important. And so it was really cool to, um, to actually have a forum to be able to talk about all of those things within the context of the evidence and have that sort of cut through and, and give people um, you know, a bit of evidence-based information that was practical, but also like holistic in the best way. Um, when I talk about holism, of course, I'm not talking about putting on my caftan and putting on scented <laughs> candles, but the whole person, the whole environment and all the things that impact them in their life and performance. Yeah, yeah, the, the multi-dimensional approach to assessing the individual. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, no, I look, I really like it. And I think, you know, I think I've had people that I've spoken to students that I've spoken to. Um, Cause I, I personally still take an interest in sort of when we get our uh, cohorts, like looking at each um, particular student, checking out the social media profile, seeing what their, uh, you know, tendencies uh, and beliefs may be and where they sit. And then if I've got a personal relationship with those close to them, then it makes it a bit easier for me to talk to them, um, you know, and see if they, if they have some polarizing opinions prior to the course and stuff. And um, yeah, there's some that were very sort of like pro carb for everyone, you know, sugar's not evil, have lots of sugar. It's good for you. And um, yeah, I like, I made sure that I would talk, I was talking to them once they'd finished the program and then really specifically wanted to hone in what they thought, um, uh, you know, about carbohydrate uh, prescription and a carbohydrate appropriate approach after seeing your lecture. And they were all really surprised that it was like, hey, well, like low carb for the majority of people with like metabolic markers and uh, pre-diabetes and heart disease stuff, you know, is typically going to be better for them, especially in the acute short term. Yeah. And that, you know, it, like in, in the long term, they sort of work... They, they work out to be pretty much even and wash out, but even still like for those people, it's probably a stronger recommendation. And so it's definitely informed the way that they're practicing moving forward, which is a really positive thing. Yeah. And I, I think that that can only be positive because, you know, one of the things that I think we're all battling with at the moment is the, the vitriolic way that people will debate online. You know, it's, it's not, <laughs> we, saw it. we were a part of it probably like three, four months ago. Yeah, well, and it, it's not sensible and it's not civil debate. It's, um, you know, it's littered with logical fallacies. And I think while we'll all fall, fall into occasionally, you know, fall into logical fallacies, I think we need to as, particularly as researchers, I think we need to do a better job of, you know, trying to see someone else's point of view, understand, you know, in, in what scenarios or context they might be correct. Um, you know, understand that within even something we see as being incorrect, there might be some value in it. And then trying to sort of work forward in that way uh, with people rather than against them. Because I think so much of it is just driven by this idea of I, I, I want visibility. Mm. And the more I can create drama around my social profile, the more that's going to drive the visibility. But overall, it's not helpful. I think we're seeing that that's one of our bigger impactors of health and performance is all this stuff the social the advertising clickbait yeah. vitriolic things you know yeah big time and look shout out to you 
because you saw it clearer than what I did at the time. Cause I was like, Oh, Hey, here's an opportunity to learn something. And then maybe we can pass some feedback on, but you assess, you, you saw the person, they wanted the exposure. And then I got sucked into like trying to like, see if we can add new information and you, and you just added in the one comment being like, Hey, this is what my lecture is for. You should check it out. <laughs> and I should have left it there. I but hope I, that wasn't but, too flippant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I wish I, I wish I had the presence of mind to be able to do that. Cause I was like, look, maybe I'm missing something because I've seen, I've seen this research and there's, you know, but I haven't, I haven't seen all the research. I've seen, you know, a fair bit of research, but I haven't seen that much. Maybe there's something that I'm missing. Um, you know, hopefully they'll consider this research as well. And um, yeah, it just didn't go anywhere. And just so, so, just so people listening in know, that was a, a little debate that we had online and it was um, not you and I, it was with a, another practitioner who is, you know, a friend of mine and I, I respect in many, um, in many respects. I, I have a lot of respect for that person, but we, we might have the odd disagreement as well. But it was basically around the idea of calories in, calories out and energy balance. And that's a really good example, I think, of similar to low carb versus high carb. It's a really good example of people not seeing the forest for the trees. You know, people will say, mm. well, calories in, calories out is, is flawed and therefore it doesn't, it, it's not worth anything because it might have some, some flaws when it comes to translation. And, you know, others will say, well, no, it's all about energy balance. But if we look within those topics, we can see quite clearly that obviously energy balance is important. We can't get around the first law of thermodynamics. But mm. what impacts that in the individual? And yes, macronutrient composition can impact energy balance. You know, I talk about it a lot in terms of the lifestyle uh, levers, you know, increased protein intake. It helps you auto-regulate your energy down. Does that mean that calories in, calories out doesn't work? No, of course it does. But it means that there are more impactors than just regulating portion sizes, which is what a lot of people infer from the idea of energy balance, calories in, calories out. Mm. Um, you know, substrate endpoints, metabolic adaptation to diet, all these various things will affect it. Yes, gut health, sleep, you know, they all affect our auto-regulation. Um, I know it's something I've talked about a lot with Eric, but anyway, that's sort of, without going down the rabbit hole, a really good example of where if we take a step back, take a second to breathe, we can often see the truths within what people are saying, even if the way they're saying it is absolutist and therefore incorrect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, this is something, you know, like, uh, like getting back to energy balance. I think, um, I think that, you know, those polarizing posts like that come from the fact that we've seen probably a massive trend from the evidence-informed community in the last six years that's really just thrown at, like, the, the, the oversimplification of the energy balance equ equation down people's throats and just said, look, it's, it's really, it, all it is is calories in, calories out. As if, as if it's this really simple thing yeah. to measure and control. <clears throat> and, and then so it's like, just just control your food intake and then just track your food and you'll be good. Exactly. And that's my big point of contention often with that type of argument is I agree with that. But my next question will often be, well, how does someone do that? Because I often see this in, you know, most people who are listening to this know that my area of research has predominantly been in, keto, ketogenesis, keto flu, those types of things. And so when there's criticism of a ketogenic diet, because people will say, well, it only worked because of energy restriction. I'll then say, well, if someone's goal is to restrict energy 
and keto helps them to do it without the, the excess stress of calorie counting or portion control, then to me it has value. I'm not saying it has more value than a different strategy. I'm mm. saying for that individual it has value. Just as for some people, keto sucks, right? Because they hate it. <laughs> they don't like eating those foods. They can overeat on it. I know people who overeat on keto because they go crazy on fat. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. Yeah, I will easily have 2,000 calories a day in fat without thinking if I go keto. Yeah, and so I've, I've seen that situation. And in some cases, I've seen clients who are much better off on a high-fiber, high higher-carb, lower-fat, moderate-to-high-protein diet because that for them is way more satiating, but more importantly, it's more palatable and it fits with them and their psychosocial environment. Now, mm-hmm. as someone who's been involved in low-carb research, people would expect me to say, well, that diet's no good. You're better off on low-carb. But that's yeah. ridiculous. You know, and not only that, but we can't ever say that, for example, even in the short term, that, that low carb is better for fat loss. Because over, on balance in the, in the short term, it probably is. Mm. But there's way more nuances to it than that. And as we've seen from the early studies by Gardner, Pittis, uh, Ebeling, um, Cormier, we, we saw that people who are more insulin sensitive, they did better on high carb. Mm. Right. So again, it comes down to defining it for the individual. Now, this is the kind of stuff that gets lost in the 140 character debates that people tend to have. <laughs> or, or even just gets lost in, you know, in the conclusion section of the paper or when we're looking at like plotting mean data versus individual data in the research as well. Yeah. Or, or what actually happened. You know, we, we yeah. published a paper and one of the things that was tweeted about most was that um, the, the keto group got the best results. But everyone said, but it was hard to adhere to, mm. right? Now, we looked at the paper objectively and the data objectively and sort of thought, well, we can make that conclusion, but it's not actually accurate. Now, the reason I say that is because people had trouble adhering to the absolute amount of carbohydrate they were prescribed. So most people couldn't hit 5% of the calories from carbs. They ended up around 8%. Yeah. But they could adhere easily to that 8%. Or they're they're sort of attempting to get to 5% meant they ended up up at 8%. And that was easy enough. So in terms of adherence, it's a really interesting one because it's kind of like satiety. What does it mean? Does it mean fullness? Does it mean satisfaction? You know, is it all of those things? Does it mean when I have a high-protein meal, what do I want to eat immediately afterwards? Or on a high-protein diet, what do I want to eat overall? You know, they're all Mm. slightly different questions and so that's one thing that we saw that was interesting because the conclusion that most people took was well you know sure it worked well but people can't adhere to it and we were kind of like well it doesn't matter if they didn't hit the number because they got results <laughs> yeah and or, or, or like you know adherence is what like a, a like a three percent deviation from the target and then I, I guess to me like with my bias having sort of practice in the sports nutrition space for the last eight years um and, and and this is sort of really something that to me was really introduced through Eric when he was going through the reviews of his pyramid books at the time. And he was talking about uh, like, you know, uh, developing literacy and then periodization of, uh, you know, qualitative and quantitative cues. And so, you know, I always took for granted. I think a lot of exercise and nutrition professionals do take it for granted because it comes naturally to us. 
the development of our nutritional literacy, yeah. right? Like that, that, yeah. that comes naturally to us, right? But if you take someone that knows nothing about food, just someone off the street, how long is that going to take them? And so that's, I guess, that's sort of the tangent that I'm on at the moment when we oversimplify calories in versus calories out and the energy yeah. balance equation. And we say, just track your food. Well, that's really hard for someone to then become proficient at who knows nothing about nutrition. Like how long are they going to take developmentally before they're at a point where their literacy is at a reasonably satisfactory level that they can effectively do that and not stress about it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that, that's a really good point because nutritional literacy obviously helps with every aspect of compliance. Right. When we, when we don't have that, we all know based on the evidence that diets suck. Like most people don't stick to diets full stop. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, attrition rates are basically the same between high carb, low fat, you know, low carb, high fat, whatever. Keto, intermittent fasting. Yeah. And so, you know, there's now the debate and I, I just did a podcast with Glenn McIntosh, who's an Aussie guy, health psychologist, really cool dude. He, he works in that sort of, not quite, but in that sort of crossover space between health psychology and I guess intuitive eating, sort of health at every size type stuff, mm. which I'm a big fan of, except that like anything, if it's absolutist, it's limited. Yeah. So, you know, we know that diets suck. We also know that um, haze and intuitive eating, as far as what I've seen in the research, they promote really good mental health outcomes. But unfortunately, in the longer term follow-ups, there still seem to be a lot of metabolic you know, degradation. Yeah. So people were getting unhealthier over time despite feeling better. But there's a, a what people miss is that there's a middle ground there. Exactly. Approaching a client as in a client centric process where they're supported and they've got community and there's, you know, as Eric would talk about flexible nutrition or flexible dieting, mm. flexibility and freedom within structures. That's kind of the, the, the golden middle ground. Yeah. And so again, there's a good example of, of looking at the research pragmatically and then finding what will work for the individual. Yeah, definitely. So if, I mean, if we go back to your research and we say, well, there's experience, like very low carb ketogenic guiders that are highly literate, does that three, is that 3% then hard, hard to stick to in a subjective sense for them? Like, would they then report back that it was really hard to stick to? And sort of my, my, my bias would be that for, you know, I've got colleagues who I know who are really effective, very low carb ketogenic dieters that for them, it would be really easy. Yeah, definitely. And so it's just like, to me, I look at like the, um, you know, the difficulty of a diet adherence and I'm, I, I, I sort of then defer back to like, what's their literacy for said intervention like? As, as my first thing, because that's going to influence their subjective feelings of difficulty. Interesting that I spoke with uh, on a podcast with um, my good buddy, Professor Grant Schofield the other night. And um, we were talking about one of our studies that was a qualitative study of the experience of a ketogenic diet. And one thing that we found really interesting within that, or actually Grant found it most interesting is the thing he keeps going back to, because he found it really fascinating was that some of the people who really struggled to to, to adhere to the diet, but also really struggled with some of the, um, the physical effects of, you know, keto flu, that sort of keto induction period, the struggle itself seemed to promote this challenge where they then wanted to stick with it. And over time it actually drove adherence 
Now, for some people, you know, we think difficulty is going to negatively affect adherence. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the complete opposite happens. Right. You know, even as small as things like terminology, this is a completely different story. But I often tell my, well, not tell my students, but I often talk with my students about the, the, the words we use and how they can affect our client. And how certain words can be seen as negative and they can create this sort of negative imperatives for people like saying, you know, a cheat, a cheat meal or a cheat day, because it's kind of like creating those feelings of guilt and shame and stuff like that, which we want to avoid. But I had a student say, actually, I love those words. Like, Why? She came from a tech background. She was really into gaming. And for her, a cheat is a way to sort of game the system and get better results. So she loved the idea of a cheat because she saw her like weekly cheat meal as being this thing that she does, which can then enhance her results. So really interesting how vernacular is different for different people too. Yeah, that is actually so cool. I, yeah, I'm, I, I reckon we, we're going to get that out on social media just because so many people are demonizing <laughs> cheat days, just as a good reframe, right? <clears throat> yeah. To, to reframe the vernacular. That's awesome. But um, I mean, look, to go back to, I guess, our initial point that where we sort of took off from on this tangent was, um, yeah, like we, within the association, we, uh, we then do encourage then the longer term study as well for the people. So even though we have this, uh, refined scope of practice for what sports nutrition is, we then say to our members, we want you going into some form of graduate study pathway, whether it's completing an undergrad or a post-grad program, or whether that's going into a post-grad diploma, um, in performance nutrition with the IOC or IOPN or then completing the HPN2 with you for them to then become uh, like get into the clinical nutrition side of things as well. We don't want them settling for what we deem our provisional minimum yeah. for what, what is really just six months of education in sports nutrition. So that, that provides them with a provisional accreditation. Then we say, look, you've got three years to practice and work out if this really is for you, which in my opinion, and I'm sure like having gone through the undergrad and postgrad pathway with universities and, and, and practicing as well, um, it, it is a really unique opportunity for a lot of people looking at, you know, this as a potential career, because uh, until this pathway existed, your options were, we'll go to uni for four years, get into X amount of debt, and then start practicing after that and see if it's for you. Yeah. Whereas now it's like, right, you know, spend a few thousand dollars, and six months studying and then get your feet wet. And then you've got three years to then decide if it is for you. And if it is, then we want you then doubling down into it and then investing into a higher standard of education than what most minimums would be, I guess, at least in the fitness space. Yeah. I think it's really leading edge stuff, you know, because I think one of the big shifts in in education, I should say, is that we're, we're looking at modular education pathways. You know, it's, it's not the old model where you go away and you pretty much do all your education. You can, but, you know, you pretty much do all your education in one big hit. Maybe you go away to, to university and you do eight years and you come out with a PhD. You know, <laughs> few people do that nowadays. People, you know, will study something and they'll maybe shift focus. They might add to that. Um, and sometimes the, if we're looking solely at the orthodox university structure, it's not always completely conducive to that. But when you can bounce in and out of orthodox into, you know, the, these modular types of education that can really add on, it offers some really interesting pathways. And it was really, you know, it was really exciting for me to see when you set up the um, SNA pathways that people could go on and do, you know, post-grad and could eventually end up with a master's degree. That's, that's pretty impressive. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, we've got, I think now four students in their masters through the program. So our first two started about seven months ago. So they've completed the fir- their first semesters of their, their master's programs through the University of Ulster. And then we've got two or three more going through the University of Roehampton now, which is wow. really cool. That's um, really cool. Yeah, so they went certificate, graduate diploma, and now into their master's in sport and exercise nutrition, which is like phenomenal. That was the pathway that I was like, I'm doing that. And I was submitting um, research proposals. <laughs> for my thesis but it, it wasn't to be and I am um, you know I'm very much just uh, you know driving this train forward and I'm like wow I'm I'm, I, I'm bucket in for the next five years at least so yeah. that way we can really do a good job of establishing our presence and you know the awareness within the industry that we exist and that, that there is this framework to practice within and there is uh, are these educational pathways for people to go down um, but yeah, it's, um, it, it's really cool. And I think, you know, going back to the orthodox and, and modular pathways as well is like, we, we see, you know, we've got a very modular pathway with um, fitness and personal trainers and the statistics globally are pretty, uh, are like a pretty unanimous and um, synonymous with the fact that there is a really high turnover of professionals in that industry. And so I think the statistic is at about 60 to 70% uh, turnover rate at about the six to 12 month rate. Wow. But coincident- coincidentally enough, in dietetics in Australia, we have an almost the same turnover. Yeah. And so what we see is about the nine to 15 month market, they're experiencing at about an 80% turnover. And that's because primarily the work is private practice and clinically based. There's very few employment opportunities for those people in dietetics. Um, like within Southeast Queensland, the state that I'm in, um, in Brisbane, we have one guaranteed full-time job advertised every six months that they know about, but there's hundreds of people graduating every semester. Yeah. And so like the majority of them are going into private practice, right? And so, you know, they've spent four or five years, you know, being lectured to and submitting assignments and stuff. And yeah, they do have practice that they go into. There's, four or 500 hours of practical uh, work that they do. But I think only about 80 to 100 of it is clinical based. And so if you're spending four to five years submitting assignments, being assessed, being lectured at, and you get some exposure into practice, but the majority of your time's in that dynamic, and then you're expected to go out and then generate clients, then sell to your clients the service, and then sell the buy-in of the program so that way they're consistently buying in and yeah. then buying into what you're doing. So that way they'll adhere to it. That's a really big shift in the behavioral dynamic of what you've just experienced for the last four to five years of your life. And Absolutely. so, um, you know, for people to be able to come in and, you know, if, like study for six months, come out and then start practicing in a limited capacity to what a dietitian is doing, but then have that three years of experience to then go on and then do that study. It enables yeah. them to come out and then have that client base, have that experience practicing, have that experience selling your clients the plan and getting them to buy into the plan as well. And yeah. so like a big shift with what we're doing with our market awareness and, you know, establishing ourselves within the Australian market now is saying like, Hey, it's not, don't do these degrees. It's like, if you're doing dietetics, we want you to do dietetics. We want to have dual members. It's just that come and study with us at year one and two. So that way you can get a head start. And so that way you're not a part of that statistic. And a big part of our mission now is sort of, we're never going to have the member numbers of what the fitness industry will have globally. 
you know, that we were talking about this before, but that it's it about for the regions that we'll be in. So the USA, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, Europe, and Canada, it's never like that. That's at about 1.5 million people globally. Yeah. Like if in 10 years time, we have 30 to 40,000 members, we've done a phenomenal job, but the other, I guess, aspect of that litmus test isn't just member volume. It's that like, what I'd like to say is, is that we have 30 to 40,000 members but our attrition rate is 20% every four to five years. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that, I, I think you're, you're bang on the, the doing while learning is such a critical aspect, I think. And whether that's, you know, doing some while studying, but also maybe having those, those times of break where you're out, you know, really applying mm. it. There's no better way to, to learn than to apply. And I, I think that's really critical. It's one thing we tell our students, uh, is that we want them to be practicing as student practitioners from day one, mm. you know, helping out their family, you know, working at their personal trainers, starting to work with clients because we are there supervising and mentoring them. They know what their scopes of practice are, but they're beginning to apply everything that they're learning from, from the get go. And I think that's a critical aspect of actually retaining what, what you're doing and also recognizing whether it's actually the right path for you. I mean, that's, that's critically important. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, the, um, like just for some Australian numbers, um, you know, like a, a dietetics undergrad is a four year full-time program, which costs anywhere from 60 to 80, $90,000 for the whole program. You know, that's yeah. a lot of time and a lot of money to work out something that, that, that something's not for you. Yeah. And we're seeing, unfortunately, we're still seeing more and more and more of that. So, you know, if we can get people in, you know, first, second, even third year, coming in, doing it, experiencing it, experiencing and, you know, determining if it is actually for them, then, you know, that, that, that these are more professionals that we're then helping along the way. And if it is, then these are the members that we want to, you know, have as our members long-term anyway. And what we've noticed that movement too, is that people are studying, you know, maybe they're doing a degree or maybe they're doing their postgrad and they're also studying with us at the Institute because they're, what they're getting from us is quite different because it's very applied. <clears throat> so they're really learning the application of maybe the advanced topics that they're starting to investigate through their postgrad research, for example. And I think it's just a really, really great fit um, if, if that's what someone wants to do is to be, say, a practitioner researcher um, and to sort of have that, that dual focus. Um, speaking of practitioner researchers, we've mentioned Eric Helms a couple of times. And so... I don't want to make this a talk about Eric, but there are <laughs> that, that ends up happening. There are some some great the people Eric behind. Guy. Yeah, there are some great people behind the SNA. So, um, t tell me a little bit bit about that. Who who is behind the SNA and who you're working with around the world to to um, expand the the organisation and its visibility? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we'll start with our. Um, so within New Zealand, we've got yourself, Eric, and then Matt White, who's then the like the department of assessment um, team leader for all the assessors and our assessment team within the association. And then in the U S we've got Dr. Joe Klemjewski, who's effectively like the godfather of online nutrition coaching. Um, yeah. So he, like he mentored Eric mentored Lane Norton uh, back in the day and was really the first online nutrition coach. I think that existed. Wow. So he, he sort of pioneered that, which is really cool. Then we've got Dr. Sean Arendt um, and Lauren Conlon and Dr. Eric Trexler in the US. And then we've got Danny Lennon. He's uh, he's our lone European member at the moment. 
Uh, Danny's kind of like a Danny's a bit of a nutrition superstar. He's a nutrition superstar. I know that you've been on his podcast a few times. He's probably been on yours before. He's he's a bit of a nutrition podcasting uh, aficionado. Aficionado. Mate, he's a phenom. He puts out a lot of content. What? Yeah, <laughs> mate, phenom- phenomenal interviewer. Hey. Yeah, re- really good. Gets gets great guests on. Um, and Danny, like himself, he, he's you know extremely knowledgeable. Super super smart guy. So. Yeah, so Danny's um, Danny's our lone European board member, and then we've got myself, we've got Jackson Pios uh, in Australia as well. I mean, it's a pretty great board you've got behind you, and it's it's an interesting one because it's to to me oh, at least. I forgot. Recently, we had then we added Dr. Gabby Fandara as well. Yes, uh, you know who is, uh, actually came up in my conversation with Glenn the other day as someone who is sort of. I guess has a foot in that camp of the intuitive eating and sort of non-judgmental type nutrition. Yeah. Um, but obviously also has the, the, the awareness around the physiology and the fact that quantification can be, you know, important and things like that. So mm. one of those people who's probably on the leading edge of bridging some of those gaps now, yeah, and I think definitely. that's probably something that comes into play a lot within your advisors is they're, you know, often practitioners and researchers um, they're, they're relatively young, very progressive. And so you're, you're really getting quite a go ahead bunch uh, to, together. And I think that's super exciting because they're credible. Um, but you know, there, there's a lot more to come from, from most of those guys. Yeah, definitely. I mean, super exciting. And just on, um, you know, Gabby sort of being across both camps, it is so funny listening to her and Mike is ripped talking debate about <laughs> nutrition topics around like how much tracking is too much tracking versus how much intuitive eating is, is too much intuitive eating. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it, like it, the entertainment is, factor is awesome with those two, but yeah, like the, um, the diversification of the board's experience and qualifications and areas of expertise, I think is the perfect complement for, you know, what the, like where sports nutrition is, at this point in time and where we're looking to go with it globally. But I mean, this was something, I mean, the amalgamation of the board was something that was actually planned for 2021, but because of COVID-19 and the travel restrictions that were put in place, I was due to be overseas for about three months of the year, um, just attending certain conferences, presenting at a couple of things, and then traveling nationally within Australia three times for, different workshops, seminars and presentations that we had. So that was about five months of my year just gone for travel that got wiped out. And it was sort of like, I remember just talking, just talking shop with Eric. Um, the NCGM was formed uh, with Dr. Joe, which is just a monthly mastermind group that they get, um, you know, a lot of the top experts in the nutrition coaching space. And they just, it, it, it's a mastermind group. And, Look, if you're not a member of the associations and you're interested in nutrition coaching, I'd say by all means, check it out. And if you're a member of the associations, you actually just get a subscription to that monthly. And we actually require that you attend at least three of them as a part of your continuing professional development. Wow. Uh, so that way you just stay plugged in to some of the more, more contemporarily topical, uh, you know, things, things that are happening within the industry. But the NCGM was formed. We were talking about that, how we could sort of make, you know, uh, merge those two together and how that would collaborate and look. And I was looking at my calendar and I was like, Hey, let's get the, get the board and the global body happening this year. Now that we've got the time. That's awesome. 
So you, you mentioned earlier a couple of the countries that the, the SNA is active in. What, what countries is it currently active in? So we are active in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and the US. And then Europe and Canada are in the process of their launch, and that will be happening before June this year. Well, which is pretty awesome because I think for the first time there's some transferability between countries, right? A lot of people, like, yes. I mean, let's face it, we're not doing a lot of travel at the moment, but you know, I know that I have clients around the world and a lot of you know, trainers, nutritionists, you know, see people remotely now. And so there's really no, no barriers, no borders, but there, there is an opportunity there to be recognized in all these different countries. Yeah. So a couple of cool things that sort of came out of the inception of the board and the global body, as well as COVID was that um, COVID really forced the underwriters and insurers to start looking at, at and taking seriously the online consultation based work between like and across borders. So yeah. They actually, like we were, we're one of the first, I think we are the first and the only one in the nutrition space to have an, like an international offshore policy now that people can then select and say, hey, look, I've got clients from these countries. They nominate the countries and then there's a like a bespoke policy that's in place, but it, it's formed under their global um, or like their international consultation-based policy now. So pre, you know, pre-COVID, that didn't exist. If, even if people were like, oh, I'm covered, it's... It was like a bit of a random thing they hadn't looked at properly, yeah. and then yeah, the second thing, like we've spoken about, this is um, there's nothing more annoying, right, than like studying and finishing your qualification and then it only being recognised in your country. So yeah. one of the cool things about the international body is that once you're recognised and you're qualified in any of the regions that were established in, then you're recognised and it's transferable in any of the other countries as well. So if you're a member of Australia and you know, hey, we can, the travel restrictions, uh, you know, start relaxing and you can go and you want to do two years in Europe or two years in America and you want to start working out of there, then you just let us know and we transfer it over. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So where is the SNA heading in the next couple of years, Alex? What are, what are your big growth opportunities in the next couple of years? So in the, in the, in the immediate next six months, it's purely... Uh, with establishing Canada and Europe. And then from that point, I would say for the next two to three years from there, our focus is primarily on as much establishment of awareness and that we exist, um, you know, within the industry as possible. Uh, you know, once we've done that and people know that we exist, it's, and like, I guess, look, I hope I haven't given the impression where like people ever, like, I guess hear about the association and then start thinking like where these like police within the industry because we're we definitely not like that and it's not like oh you're out of scope you shouldn't be doing that like we don't exist to do that like if anything like really really bad happens let us know we want to help people right um so uh, like an example of this would be a girl actually i think it was in november last year a colleague of mine um jordy sullivan the fight dietitian he helps um he's a dietitian that does the nutrition programming for a lot of the top ufc fighters in the world so israel adesanya's his client, he's got a lot of the top boxers um, within Australia and New Zealand as well, who fight for WBO, WBA, IBF world titles as well. And um, so he does their uh, protocols. He had a junior client, um, an aspiring fighter who he's worked with, and they had, as a lot of the junior and amateur, um, more amateur type fighters, you know, experience, they had a last minute fight come up that they wanted to try and make weight for. And he said, look, it's just going to be too much. So I'm not going to do it. 
And so instead of just taking his advice and not doing it, they then sought out another professional who helped them with the cut. Um, they ended up making the weight, but when they were cutting and doing the dehydration, they were in a sauna, in a sauna suit. And oh, wow. so that, that then contributed to them actually getting some um, like burns, some pretty severe burns wow. down their legs where their legs were like the, their legs were sweating the most. So they were like, they had, and they hadn't realized this. And so then the professional then advised them, the professional they were working with the coach advised them to then go and get cryo done. And so, you know, when you're doing your first aid, the, oh, um, no. the first thing you're told is if you get a burn, don't wrap it to cool it, right? But they weren't aware that it was a burn anyway. They've gone and done it. And now this poor girl's got um, third degree burns down her legs and required skin graft procedures and all this stuff and won't be fighting for at least the next 18 months and, you know, will have like permanent scarring and um, disfigurement to her legs for the rest of her life. And wow. so I don't, we don't normally work, we work in the protection side of things, but Geordie let me know that this had happened. And so like we reached out to them you know, help, help them where we could in terms of like how to make a claim because we obviously work with people with how to protect them from a claim. But then, you know, in this event, we were like, hey, we'll hold your hand through this process as well. So we're not the police or anything like that, but if something bad happens, we just want to help people. But I mean, if you're hearing this, don't think, oh, we're going to be sitting here being like, you need to be doing this. <laughs> we just want to give you the information. So that way, you know that we exist, you know that there's these, you know that there's these pathways, you know that there's a body that exists to, you know, that has established what best practice is in, in sports nutrition for the profession that you can register and accredit with down the track if this is something that you want to do. Um, yeah. You know, so for us, the next two to three years, the focus is really just making people aware that we exist and yeah. that we're here for them in, in, in whatever way that we can help. And then look from three years, from three years on, it's really just chop wood and carry water for the next 10 plus I love to it. <laughs> refine, refine our systems, refine and reaffirm, you know, to, to the industry, really give back, reaffirm to the industry, what we're doing, what we've done at that point. Um, you know, for us, it'd be really, uh, you know, like trying to actively contribute to research that will help. Um, we're just in the process of acquiring a um, commercial site to set up a research lab. Um, so that way we can look at, you know, publishing anywhere from, look over the next two years it might be say like two papers a year but i'd like to get to a point where we're actively contributing to you know 20 plus papers a year that'd, that'd be really cool as well it's really cool i mean it sounds very much like a social enterprise you know it's um it's giving back to the community and you know that that story that you just relayed was was super interesting to me because you know there's a number of ways to look at that and what i sort of read from that is we can potentially prevent some of these things happening just through greater education and awareness, you know, scopes of practice and also learning from, you know, people who have done it before. And, mm. you know, that there are people within the SNA who, who have, you know, a lot of knowledge in various areas. And when you talk about fighters and cutting, you know, I know Danny does a lot of work with fighters and he's consummately yeah. evidence-based. Um, when I was living in North America, they used to call me the king of the cut because I never had a fighter not make weight. And I worked with, you know, world champs, uh, Olympians, you know, all, all sorts of work with UFC fighters. And so you, you develop a skill set that you then don't just want to hold on to. You want more people to know about that so that there aren't these unfortunate things that can happen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, look, coincidentally enough, um, you know, Geordie and I like uh, started working on a paper uh, that, hopefully in the next six months we'll be submitting our first draft oh, oh sorry next three months we'll be submitting 
the like the um, submitting our first draft for publication, and it'll probably well, get cool. back two or three times from there. But um, yeah. it's on the, the it's on the theoretical considerations for weight cutting. So recently, probably in the last two years, we've seen a lot of sort of like position statements come out that have that instill a certain amount of confidence in a certain methodology and approach to weight cutting, but they haven't really had the platform or word count to really elaborate on what the considerations of the data, you know, really is for a practitioner. Yeah. And so his concern and my shared concern, you know, based on the position statements were that it was like, Hey, um, you know, uh, that like people might be getting, an overinflated sense of confidence as practitioners to like follow these particular recommendations as the gold standard because they were in a position statement. And so, you know, it's to really discuss what the theoretical considerations and practical limitations of an intervention are and what, what the practitioner needs to consider at each phase of the cut. You know, are we in, are we in the fight camp? Are we in the fight week or are we 72 hours from, from, from away in? And then what what are the, what are the individual considerations from there as well? So there's a lot of considerations. And as far as, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, with your experience in weight cutting, there is so much that we do not know. Yeah, definitely. That's that's great. I I really look forward to reading that paper because that's something that I'd be absolutely dying to, to, to to read. Yeah. So Danny's actually involved in it and um, we're going to have, Danny will be hosting some like round tables with the authors. um, once, Once we've, submitted the publication um, from that point to sort of just help get the exposure for it. But um, yeah, James Morton, Carl Langham Evans are all like, like they're like sort of like the top people in their respective fields uh, sort of all contributing to it. I, I'm more the guy just being like, guys, let's do something about it. Again, awesome. it, was the, it, 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 was, it was the whole situation of, Hey, no one's doing something about this. Let's do it. Well, that, that's the thing that's, that's come through this talk is that, you know, you, there was an itch and it needed to be scratched and you were the guy to do it. Yeah, I'm um, a scratcher. <laughs> yeah. So I know that you're an incredibly busy guy. I know you've got lots of things that you've got to get off and do today, but I want to finish with two quick questions. Okay. Um, and one I tend to ask everybody, it's a little bit out of the box. What's your favorite non-health or non-performance book and why? Uh, Drive by Daniel Pink. Loved it. Dude, great book. I just read that uh, end of last year. Yeah. Fantastic. I would highly recommend that to anyone. It's a book about the sort of the, the science and the evidence behind what motivates us. Yeah. And I think for anyone who's involved in sports, uh, you know, coaching or business. Yeah. Dude, it's, it's a phenomenal read. It really yeah, changed yeah. my perspective on a lot of things, even though a lot of it I, I had previously read, I hadn't put it together and it changed yeah, a lot of the way we approach things in our business. Yeah. It completely changed the way that I look at, just motivation at a like a like at a at an individual level like yeah. just, and, and then for people in general and then a close second would be sapiens great book yeah yeah i yeah i'm i'm definitely down with those two recommendations <laughs> and the final question what's your favorite tip or tool for living a better healthier happier life and it could be wow. anything wow for me at the moment, it's just movement. Cool. Just like, like move more and enjoy movement. It's a, interesting you say that because when I was on Danny's podcast, he asked a similar question, like if there was one health tip I could give people. And it was interesting because if he had have asked me that question probably three months before, I would have said 
as I have through most of my life, meditation. You know, I, I'm a massive fan of meditation. I've, you know, meditated since I was a little kid and I, I think it's really mm. uh, useful. But I didn't say that. I said go for a walk because it encapsulates movement, being outside in green spaces, um, and it is mindful as well. So in many respects, it's meditation, but it's the same sort of thing. It's just just move, you know, move and be okay with just moving. Mm, mm. And, you know, like I, for me, I mean, look, for me personally, um, self-diagnosed ADHD. Yeah, I, um, can, I can see that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, like it, for me personally, like with my own experience, like I, like there's there's so much research that supports the health benefits of exercise and movement but then also from a place of just being able to be in a really good mental space and then focus like if i'm exercising or if i'm moving throughout the day i'm 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 so much more cognitively disciplined but at the same time uh like then my cognitive performance is at a much higher level more than what I would be if I'd had caffeine or a really strong yeah. B vitamin or anything like that. Absolutely. And shout out to um, our buddy, Dr. Eric Helms. He recently just did an article on um, exercise Caffe- versus just residual movement. Oh, and I then, you were going to say the caffeine one. No, no. Although they, they do everything over there. But, <laughs> um, no, it was re- really interesting because we had had the discussion several times about how, how effective is just the exercise versus you know, also being residually active through the day. And, you know, it seems as if the intense exercise is obviously incredibly beneficial, but it's obviously not as beneficial as also having, in addition to that, just that that extra movement through the day, you know, that seven and a half thousand steps or so. Mm, mm. So uh, that's something I've certainly taken on board as I've grown older because I- I've never stopped training intensely but there was a time where I certainly drastically limited, not, you know, intentionally, but just through my, my workspace and things like that, I drastically limited how much I was moving around during the day and I noticed the degradation. So that's a real priority for me is to um, just make sure I try it. Well, it's as simple as for me, making sure I leave the house at least once a day. <laughs> no, I'm just saying uh, it's like, take the dogs for a walk. If I can do that, take them to the park, play a bit of fetch. Exactly. Um, coming off my knee surgery a couple of months ago, like, yeah, I, I can't be super, super active, but it might be pop the dogs in the car, take them to the park, throw the ball, yeah. and then hop on the assault bike and just do arms only or something like that for half an hour. Yeah. And if I'm doing that, I, everything's better. Well, Alex, there have been some pearls of wisdom in there for anyone who is in the, sort of health, fitness, nutrition realm or associated allied health, personal trainers, strength coaches, dietitians, nutritionists, uh, check out the Sports Nutrition Association uh, and check out the, the education pathways, which obviously include our institute, the Holistic Performance Institute. I will have links to all of the interesting things in the show notes. Man, thank you so much. And I love that pearl with uh, the reframing of cheat. Yeah, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? <laughs> that's awesome. So that's going to go on social media this week and you're getting the shout out. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Seth. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To sign up for member-only benefits, go to cliffharvey.com. Or to learn about studying to become a nutrition coach, health coach, or clinical or sports nutritionist, go to holisticperformance.institute.